0: Well, now I would invite you to take your Bible with me and turn to Philippians chapter one, if you haven't already, for our third and final message entitled, To Live as Christ. Though I confess that having sung, Give Me Jesus, I'm tempted to extend the the series, but I'm not going to do that. I'm very eager to keep trekking through Philippians. Many identify the Apostle Paul as their spiritual hero. They look to him, his life of faithfulness, his commitment to Christ, uh, the the, the suffering that he endured, his boldness in the face of opposition. They love his theological mind and his compassionate heart. Really, apart from Christ, it, it almost seems like Paul is the consummate Christian. Why is that? Well, it's because of what Paul says in this very text. Just follow along as as I read from the end of verse 18 through verse 21. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life Or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Whether Paul was the consummate Christian or not, only the Lord knows. He certainly had his faults. He was a sinner just like you and me. But he aimed to conform his life in every way that the Spirit would enable him to, conform his life to Christ. That's what he means here when he says, to live is Christ. This short phrase in verse 21 is is really the motto for the Christian life. To live is Christ is the very definition of what it means to be a Christian. And since we know you can't live out what you don't understand, we've kind of been taking a pause in our progression through Philippians to just consider what does this mean to live as Christ. This is the core. This is really the basics for all of life as a Christian. If any of the foundation stones of, of what this means are, are not in place in our life, we will struggle to build our house on the rock of Christ. Life will be unstable. We'll struggle with, uh, to get rid of sin trials will cause us to to fall apart. We'll lack the, the joy and the peace and the power that have been promised to us. And through it all, our relationship with God will be off kilter by a little or by a lot. On the other hand, when when the foundation of Christian living to live is Christ, when that is increasingly in place in our lives by God's grace, we will find strength and stability and endurance and joy and freedom in life. No matter what life brings. Whether suffering or success, whether sickness or health or poverty or riches. And so we began couple messages ago with the first foundation stone of the, what it means to live as Christ. And this first foundation stone refers to our goal, our goal to live as Christ means to live for his glory. This is the, the cornerstone, the, the piece that sets the trajectory for all of life in Christ. And that is that we are to live for his glory. By faith, we are to embrace reality as God reveals it. And with His help, we are increasingly to live consistent with God's revelation of reality. And when we do that, we affirm to God that He is worthy of worship and and imitation. And as we do that, we put on display for others to see that God is worthy of worship and imitation. So to live as Christ means that we are to live for his glory. The second foundation stone defines our motivation. Our motivation to live as Christ means to be controlled by his love. To be controlled by his love. A driving force that propelled Christ to to do all that he did in accomplishing our redemption through his life, death, and resurrection was his love for us. This Love of Christ is so magnificent that we can't comprehend it on our own. We actually need supernatural empowerment by the Holy Spirit to begin to comprehend it. And as we grow in comprehending the love of Christ, it becomes our fuel, our motivation. The third foundation stone declares our identity our identity. To live as Christ means to live being defined by Him. Rather than finding our identity in things that are skin deep or ever-changing dynamics of life, we know who we are based on what Christ says is true about us because of our union with Him. As justified, new creatures, uh, we are adopted, we are sanctified, and we are redeemed. And through those things, we have everything that we need to know about ourselves, to live securely, and to understand our meaning and purpose in life. The fourth foundation stone provides our power. Our power to live as Christ means to live empowered by Him. The Christian life can't be lived on our own strength. What Christ calls us to is beyond our ability. Did you know that not even Jesus Christ lived on the basis of His own power? He Himself was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And just as Jesus had to die in order to rise again and experience the power of the resurrection, so we too will experience resurrection power to live when we die to ourselves for His sake. Now, we walked through those first four foundation stones over the last two messages. So if you missed any of those, I would encourage you to go back and listen to them. Those are really life Shaping truths. Well, that brings us then to the fifth foundation stone, which refers to our mission. Our mission. To live as Christ means to live as his representative. To live as Christ means to live as his representative. Turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just a little bit back in the New Testament from Philippians. We've looked at various portions of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in this series and now we want to consider the words of verses 18 to 20 as we consider our mission to live as his representatives. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18, "Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation." Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. We see plainly stated here in verse 20 that we are ambassadors for Christ. Now we know what an ambassador is. It's a, a citizen of one country who resides in another country so that he can represent his home country's interests and purposes in that foreign land. And that is what it means to be Christ's representatives. To wor- We work to protect and advance the interests and purposes of Christ in this world. Now, it's true that in the context, when Paul says we are ambassadors for Christ, he's primarily referring to himself and his partners in ministry. But every Christian can take this responsibility to yourself when you connect your identity in Christ and the implications for how that makes you an ambassador for Christ. Let's just walk through some of our identities and see how they imply and really require that we are Christ's ambassadors. For example, if you are in Christ, as we've said, you are justified. God has declared you righteous in Christ, and in so doing, he has saved you. And so in Ephesians 4, after working through the doctrine of salvation of all that God has done for us in Christ in chapters 1 through 3, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you as a prisoner of the Lord to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. You've been saved by Christ. You've been justified. So now walk according to your calling. Well, what is that calling? Well, that's the whole of chapters 4 through 6. In Ephesians, where he walks through the the different implications of what it means to live as one who has been saved by Christ. But it's noteworthy that the very first implication, the very first manner of, of life that we are called to is this. He says, "...with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace." In other words, not, as representatives of Christ, not only should we proclaim the gospel of reconciliation to the world, but our relationships should reflect the, rela- the reconciliation we have with God and with one another. That is our calling on the basis that we have been unified with Christ. Christ. And we are now his people as justified by him. We are called to live reconciled lives. That's what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. That's protecting the interests of Christ in this foreign land. Another identity is that we have been adopted into the family of God. We know we are his sons and daughters. And it's now our privilege to work in the family business of reconciliation. Reconciliation. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemaking is the business of our Father. And so when we have become His children, and we are known as peacemakers, the connection is made that we are His sons and daughters. We are peacemakers, demonstrating that we are His sons and daughters. And daughters, Or consider verse 44 of Matthew 5. Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For He causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Do you know that as a reconciling God, God does not treat His enemies as enemies? No, He pours out His love on His enemies. He is good to his enemies. He does not withhold anything that is good from them. And so as his children, we are called to imitate our father in loving those who hate us. That's what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. Yet another identity that we discussed last time is that we are saints. We are saints. And We said that being a saint in the biblical sense has nothing to do with how good you are, how righteous you are, or what you've accomplished in life. It has everything to do with the fact that God has taken you out of the kingdom of darkness and placed you in the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so now we are citizens of heaven, and as such, we have the privilege of living according to the customs and laws of our new country. And so Peter writes in 1 Peter 2, 9, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were not for once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He says, Beloved, I urge you as, as aliens and strangers to, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God on the day of visitation. So our identity as saints, the fact that we are now the people of God, citizens of heaven, we are part of a new people group, demands a change in lifestyle and habits away from sinful living and toward the excellency of Christ. You notice in there he said both that we proclaim the excellencies of God, that's the gospel, and we live the excellencies of God. That's what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation. We protect and we advance the interests of Christ. Now one more, we are slaves of Christ. And being owned by Him, puts us in the privileged position of serving our master. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 24 about a slave master who put a slave in charge and went off on a long journey. And he said, "Who then is faithful? Excuse me, who then is the faithful and sensible slave from whom uh, whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing." When he comes, that parable refers to the calling we have to do the master's work while he is away. We are to to do what he would do. We are to represent him. We are to rightfully exercise his authority as it has been entrusted to us. And when he comes, if we've been faithful, we will be rewarded according to our faithfulness. In these ways and more, the New Testament consistently speaks about the privilege we have to be representatives of Christ. And at the top of the list of responsibilities is that we are to be agents of reconciliation. We proclaim the gospel of reconciliation and we live reconciled lives. When we look at the world of unbelievers, and we see them among whom we once lived rebelling against God, we misrepresent Christ when we spew hatred and hostility. Rather, like Christ, as his rep- representatives, we should meet the world with compassion. We were once as lost as they were, and Christ saved us apart from anything that we had done. So in compassion, we look for opportunities to be the mouthpiece and the hands and the feet of Christ so that more might know the Savior. This is our mission in life. To live as Christ means to live as His representatives. The next and the sixth foundation stone refers to our anticipation. Our anticipation. To live as Christ means to live expecting His return. To live expecting His return. You can turn to Philippians chapter 3. And at the end of chapter 3, Paul says this in verse 20. He says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our body, the, the body of our humble state, into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even subject, to subject all things to Himself. Did you see that in verse 20? From which we eagerly wait for a Savior. So the, the believer lives with a future orientation. We're We're waiting. And we're not just waiting, we're waiting eagerly for the coming and the return of Christ. There's a leaning forward, there's a looking to the heavens, there's a is he here yet mentality. Now you'll note that Paul grounds this, this longing, this waiting on our identity as citizens of heaven. As citizens of heaven, we are longing for our king to return to come and, and take us to himself. Because not only do we want to be with him, but we know that when we see him, we will become like him, which is what he says in verse 21. When the Bible talks about the Christian life, the eager expectation of Christ's return is central to Christian living. mean, you'll find this all over the place, but consider Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, where it says, "...inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once," And after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait, await him. Listen, if, if the author of Hebrews wanted to, he could have said, He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, period. And if He would have said that, we would have been great, wonderful. We wouldn't think, well, something's missing there. But He adds this statement, He will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await Him. Now that doesn't mean that there are Christians and then there's a subset of Christians who are eagerly waiting for whom Christ is coming back. That means that Christians... Are eagerly awaiting for the return of Christ, or at least we ought to be. What defines those for whom Christ is coming back is that they eagerly are waiting for him. Many of you recall that when we studied Titus, especially Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, we noted a vital component of Christian living is the hope that we have in the return of Christ. And verse 13 of that section says that while we're living sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, we ought to be looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Looking, expecting, waiting for Christ is not something you add to your calendar, which makes you busier. It's what you do while you're living your life. Like a child who's eagerly waiting for the sound of the doorbell signaling the arrival of grandma and grandpa while they're cleaning the house. We ought to be going about our lives listening for the sound of a trumpet calling us to the heavens to join Christ. The Lord has revealed His plans for the future to us, he's told us that after the tribulation, Christ will establish his throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years. And after that thousand-year reign of Christ, Satan will be uh, uh, released from his bondage. He will deceive those many of those who were born during that thousand-year reign of Christ, and he will launch an attack on the city of Jerusalem. But Christ, being God, will squash that attack immediately. And he will cast Satan and his angels and his followers into the lake of fire. Once that judgment is complete, 2 Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people want you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and even hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will, be, will melt with intense heat. In other words, knowing the future as we have been given that revelation in Scripture, knowing what God has planned for the end of time should cause us to direct our gaze in eager expectation while we live each day in light of what will happen. You know, had God not revealed to us what would happen if he hadn't told us that Christ is coming back. Do you know how we would live? We would live exactly as the world lives. Trying to eke out every ounce of pleasure and happiness we could. Because there's nothing out there except what we can get out of today. And you know, if we're honest, one of the reasons we battle with sin so much is because we're not expecting his return. We're actually living, in some ways at least, as if he's not coming back. Remember the parable in Matthew 24 of of that master who went away and appointed A slave. The the faithful slave is not the only slave Jesus mentioned in the parable. He he went on to say, But if an evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time. And he begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him, at at an hour when he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a serious warning. But it's a parable, and Jesus is making a singular point. And that point is not that if you don't live as faithfully as you should, you will somehow lose your salvation. That's not what Jesus is saying. Rather, his point positively is that we should be expectantly waiting for his return and living in light of the fact that he can come at any moment. But there's still that warning that if we don't, he may catch us living in sin. And if we're doing that as a pattern of life, we might be manifesting that we actually aren't saved to begin with. So anticipating the return of Christ strengthens us in our battle against sin because the last thing we should want is to be caught in sin at the return of Christ. On a positive note, the anticipation of Christ's return comforts us and enables us to endure suffering in this life because we know that from the moment that we hear that trumpet sound through the end of eternity, we will experience nothing but inexpressible and endless joy. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. At the women's conference, Pastor Jack Hughes gave a message called A Trip to Heaven. Whether you're a woman, you're a woman, or whether you're a man, whether you're young or you're old, that is an important message to listen to. Using both clear biblical statements and some sanctified imagination, that message gives us a glimpse of what may happen the moment we die. And if we can just let that taste linger in our mouths, that taste of glory, our appetite for the temptations of this world would just fade away. And we would be empowered to endure suffering. Do you know that Christ can come today? Yeah, but he won't. We say to ourselves, do you know that Christ could come before Thanksgiving? Yeah, he probably won't. We say to ourselves, do you know that Christ could come before 2023? Yeah, but he won't. We say in our hearts. See if this sentiment sounds or rings true with you. Where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all just continues the way it has from the beginning of creation. It can sometimes feel that way, can't it? But those words are on the lips of mockers who followed after their own lusts. Second Peter 3. For nearly 2,000 years of church history, the church of Jesus Christ has anticipated the coming of the Lord. And for 2,000 years, every generation has been disappointed at the fact that he hasn't come yet. And after 2,000 years, it can be easy to think he's probably not going to come in the next five years. Probably not in the next 10. Maybe not even in the next 50. He's certainly not coming back today. But that is precisely the wrong Way to think. That's the the evil slave who says, My master's not coming back. I can just do whatever I want. Precisely because we don't know when he's coming back is the reason that we should be ready at any moment. Jesus said in Matthew 25, Be on the alert. You you do not know the day or the hour. And then he went on to give the parable of the talents, encouraging us to, to be good stewards of what he entrusts into our care so that we will be rewarded upon His return. But you know, even if it's true that Christ is delayed longer than we would want, even if it's true that He's not going to come back in 50 years, even if we think it's unlikely He's going to come back in our lifetime, we must still live in light of the future because we don't know when we're going to die. We are not promised 80 to 90 years. Now, some of you are there. (laughs) But most of us aren't. And frankly, most of us won't. Some of you know that just over a week ago, a teenager, a young teenager at a local Christian school didn't wake up. Died in his sleep. Several years ago, a childhood friend of mine, uh, a young woman now in, in these years, but with a husband and two young children, incredibly fit, incredibly healthy, just didn't wake up. No medical explanation for her death. We are more likely to die from disease or accidents or other kinds of causes than we are to make it to old age. Sometimes we see death coming, and sometimes we don't. So even if Christ doesn't come back, we can be certain that we will die. And when that will happen, we don't know. So how should we live even if he doesn't come back in our lifetime? We should live faithfully. And how should we live if Christ could come back at any moment? Faithfully. To live as Christ means to live expecting his return. Our final foundation stone then pertains to what that faithful life actually looks like. This is our manner, the manner by which or in which we live. Foundation stone number seven, our manner is to live as Christ means to live following his example. To live as Christ means to live following his example. Turn over to Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we read a very familiar statement. And I just want you to see this as if for the first time and not just gloss over it. In Luke chapter 29, look at verses 22 to 26. The Son of Man, Jesus says, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is Ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You know, Jesus was accused of a lot of things. We read those accusations throughout the pages of the Gospels. But there was one thing he was never accused of. He was never accused of performing a bait and switch. He told his followers, far in advance, exactly what would happen. I'm going to I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise on the third day. And he made it clear that if you wanted to follow him, that's where you needed to follow him. That's where he was going, and that's where you needed to go. Even in the upper room, just hours before he was betrayed, Jesus said, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That is not a warning. That is a promise. A promise that has borne true throughout history and down to today. He promised his disciples that following him was not the road to prosperity and success and authority and power. He promised that following him was the road of suffering. There is sometimes the suffering of external pressures, the, the, the things that can happen to us, whether it's natural disasters or, or bodily sickness or the sins that other people can commit against us. There's, there's that kind of external suffering that sometimes comes into our lives. And it's often, not sometimes. And then there's always the internal suffering that we experience when we die to ourselves daily through self-denial. That's the focus of what Jesus says there in verse 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily. You must deny yourself, he says. And in denying yourselves, instead of following your own passions and desires, which is what we naturally tend to do, he says, follow me. Live for my passions. Live for my desires. Now, I noted that in the first message that the order of these foundation stones more or less didn't really matter other than the first one and the last one. The first, the cornerstone that sets the trajectory for all of life, as I said, is that we are to live for the glory of Christ. And this last one must be last because it's, it's on this foundation stone that we immediately start to build the structure of the Christian life. The foundation stone itself is the character and the lifestyle and the priorities and the values of Christ. His life is the foundation of our life, and it's on the rock of Christ that we build a house that lines up with His. Now, I'm no architect, but I checked with Kirk, and he confirmed that the shape of the internal components, or most of them, many of them, the shape of of those components of a home, are based on the foundation that lies underneath it. You can't, for example, build a foundation uh, with concrete walls and, and pillars and pipes and then decide in the middle of building the house to move the bathroom to some completely different part of the house that has no pipes. Or at least you can't do that without making foundational changes. Nor can you put load-bearing walls where there aren't supports underneath. The foundation doesn't determine everything. There's a whole lot of changes you can make, but it sets the, the boundaries and the major components that can't be changed without changing the foundation. And so it is with Christ. If our life is founded on Christ, our lives would look completely different from one another in all kinds of ways. Of ways, but there are major components of the Christian life which must be consistent among us because our foundation is the same. And what are those components? It is the attributes of Christ, his his character, and his manner of life. Let me just walk through some examples. Consider Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, which we'll study, of course, in, in a few weeks. Philippians 2, 5, Paul says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Excuse me. And what's that attitude that Christ had that we are to have? Verse 3 defines the attitude of humility as that uh, attitude which regards others as more important than myself and which considers the interests of others above my own. Humility is not self-hatred. It's not self-loathing. It's not thinking uh, everybody else is better than me. No, humility is putting yourself, excuse me, putting others before yourself, even if you are in a higher position, which is exactly what Jesus was. And so we are to look to Jesus' example of humility and consider how to follow that manner of life in our particular lives. Or consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2, which has come up a number of times in this series, where Paul writes, walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. We are to follow the example of the sacrificial love of Christ. We're to look at our relationships, our our marriages or our family or our school or our work in in the church and in the community. And we are to consider even while we're thinking about those who are opposed to us, those who have made themselves our enemies, how can I reflect in my manner of life the sacrificial love of Christ? So we're to follow the example of Christ in his humility and in his love. Consider also Romans fifteen seven. Paul writes, Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us, to the glory of God. Accepting others here does not mean to begrudgingly put up with each other when we don't really want to be around each other. No, it means to embrace one another, even those we might not otherwise get along with. When Paul sent Onesimus, a slave, back to his master Philemon, Paul urges Philemon in his letter, accept him as you would me. Same word. And in that letter, we get a flavor of the affectionate relationship that Paul had with Philemon. And so you can imagine that if Paul just showed up unannounced to Philemon, there would be celebration, there would be excitement, there would be hugs. And so Paul says to Philemon, I'm sending you back your runaway slave who is now your brother in Christ. Accept him as you would me. That probably wasn't Philemon's first reaction. To do that. Do you know what is a tragedy in many churches? Ours not accepted. We know theologically that there is no such thing as, the unforg- as an unforgivable sin other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus made that very clear in Matthew chapter 12. But many believers, every one of us saved by grace alone, have so misunderstood the gospel that there are sins which are perceived if not treated as unforgivable. These are sins which are usually kept in secret because of the fear, which is sometimes based on experience, that if my former sins or my current struggles came to light, people would treat me at best as a second-class citizen if not reject me altogether. Sins like struggling with same-sex attraction, struggling with gender dysphoria, sins like having had an abortion, or having engaged in rampant sexual immorality, or being addicted to pornography, or going home every night and drinking yourself to sleep. These and other sins are kept in the shadows of a person's life, and you would never know that they're there because they're afraid that if their sins are brought into the light, they wouldn't be accepted. They wouldn't be welcome. Believe, beloved, this should not be. Jesus encountered sins of every kind. And he always treated everyone as nothing less than an image bearer of God who was worthy of love and compassion and to be cared for. Now we don't approve of sin. We, we, We are honest about our sin and what it is. But Jesus' engagement with sinners also didn't deny sin. And yet he continued to Relate with and spend time with and show love to sinners in such a way that the Pharisees said, Oh, he's a friend of sinners. Oh, that we would be known as friends of sinners. Because we accepted one another as fellow sinners in desperate need of grace. And so following Christ, we are to accept one another as Christ has accepted us. As a final example for today of how we are to follow Christ in his manner of life, consider 1 Peter 2, 21, where Peter writes, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. We're to follow the example Jesus set in suffering unjustly. This is the purpose, Peter says, for which we have been called to suffer unjustly. We'll see that in a couple of weeks in Philippians as well. Now, leading up to that verse, Peter has been admonishing the believers to submit to every human institution, regardless of whether or not the authorities were using their authority properly. Whatever authorities exist in your life, whether it's in the home or in the workplace or in society, in the government, Peter says, submit to them. And he says, especially to household slaves, servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do right, And suffer for it, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. In saying those words, he doesn't just speak to servants, he speaks to all who are under unreasonable and oppressive authorities. This is what Jesus did. He submitted himself to the authorities who unjustly arrested him, illegally tried him, and irrationally murdered him. And the example that he set, according to verse 23 of 1 Peter 2, is while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Now, I have to say that this does not mean that we never seek protection or safety or utilize God-given authorities to hold oppressors accountable whether that's church discipline or law enforcement. But this is to say that ultimately, when there are no other options, this is the model that Jesus gave. He didn't scream. He didn't yell. And he didn't fight back. He wasn't disrespectful. During his trials, as he stood before the Jewish leaders, as, uh, as he stood before Pilate, he spoke the truth, but he did it calmly and respectfully. And through it all, he entrusted himself to his father, whom he knew would never let a single sin go unpunished. And so the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write this for us. That the manner in which Jesus responded to his suffering and death is the example which he gave for the express purpose that we would follow in his footsteps. Now, there are many other examples we could look to, many other passages that look at the person and the work of Christ and say, Now you do the same thing. You can just read your New Testament and you will find that all, of, all over the place. But I want to end by zooming out from the examples back to the principle and, and draw your mind to a familiar passage Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, where Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary. And heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Note how Jesus says there, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus is drawing from a common farming practice that. When a young animal, let's say an ox, needed to be trained in how to plow a field, the the farmer would connect an older ox to the younger one using a long beam that would span across their shoulders. And the older one would then lead the younger one to teach them how to respond to the farmer's instructions and how to stay in line. The younger ox would be tempted to go off to the side or, or to go faster or to go slower And so he needed the the older ox to to teach him through that direct connection of the yoke. The the, the The older ox would model for the younger one how to work. And so with that in mind, you immediately see what Jesus is saying when he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's saying, follow my example. Let me show you how to live. When you go your own way, you're just going to find that life gets hard. You're going you're to be weary. You're going to be weighed down by the consequences of your choices. But if you follow my way, you will find rest for your souls. And my way of living won't overburden you. In fact, I would say that if you feel burdened and overburdened and weighed down, thinking you're trying to live for Christ, it's probably true that you're not doing it like Christ. And maybe you need to seek discipleship from someone who can help you understand how to follow Christ in a way that is easy and light. Now, when I say easy, when Jesus says easy, everywhere else that word is used is translated as good or kind. So he's not saying, hey, follow me. It's a walk in the park. He's not saying, oh, it's just easy as one, two, three. No, he's saying that when you take his yoke upon you, You're going to find, excuse me, you're not going to find it to be harsh or rough or uncomfortable to the point where you just want to take it off. Not like anything new. You might find it, find it uncomfortable at first because you're not used to it, but once you start to submit to his influence, you will find that he is gentle with you. And the results are pleasant. And quickly it becomes a much more preferable way of living than going your own way. So to live as Christ means to live following his example, to imitate him and his character and his attitudes and his way of relating with others and even how he suffered and died. Well, my friends, we've walked through seven foundation stones of what to live as Christ means. The one who embraces Christ as their life has a transcendent goal in life, to live for the glory of Christ. And they're driven by one primary motivation. As they grow in comprehending the love of Christ, they're driven forward in life. And no matter what else is true about them, the, the one thing they can be sure of, their unshakable identity, is in how Christ defines them. And then they find their, their strength coming from Christ as they are empowered as they die for him and with him. They know their mission, and that is to be a representative of Christ in all of their dealings. They keep their eyes on the horizon looking for his return. And when it comes to the day in and day out manner of life, they look to Christ as the model and the example of how to live and how to suffer and how to die. To live is Christ. Before Christ, we would have to say, to live is sin. The curse of sin so pervasively infected our lives that every area of life was infected by sin. But when Christ saved us, he took ownership of us and he steps into every area of our lives and declares mine. And so that even while the principle of sin continues to reside in us until we see him face to face, Christ increasingly defines and shapes and renews area every area of life. And so, may the Spirit so work in your life and in my life so that our motto would be to live as Christ. Let's pray. As I pray, the men can come to prepare for the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, we come to the end of this brief study of what it means to have You as our life. And no doubt we could continue to search the Scriptures mining it deeper and deeper, finding more and more treasure because you are an infinite person. You are glorious and there is no way we can ever come to the end of what it means to conform our life to you. But I pray that in these seven foundation stones that we would find encouragement and joy, that we would not see them as burdensome, but that we would see them as delightful knowing that it is not our own strength, it's not our own power. We don't live this way to earn our salvation. We do this because you are worthy of worship. You have saved us. You have given us your Holy Spirit. You empower us. And it is our delight and joy to serve you, to become more and more like you. Lord, as we now turn to the celebration of your sacrifice May our hearts be lifted up even further to the heights of worship and praise. In Christ's name, amen.